just move a bit forward because it just feels like, I don't know why, it feels like I'm like a hundred miles from anyone. And, um, all right. Well, okay. For those of you that were with us last weekend away, um, when, we were, when we went away to the Wycliffe Centre, you'll probably remember that I, um, we started looking at a book in the Bible called 1 Peter. And it's the first letter that the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Peter wrote. Sorry. Um, and um, so we looked at that on the Sunday morning last week. And so that's where we're going to be for the next few weeks, or maybe next few months, looking at this letter. And um, there's loads in there. There's subjects like, we've already mentioned last week, there's subjects like how to handle a really annoying bosses. So if you've got situations at work with bosses that you just think, this person's doing my head in, how to respond in a godly way. Um, how to be a good husband. How to be a good wife. Um, important things to know. How to handle when you suffer. Someone opposes you, if you're here today and you're a Christian, how do you handle it when someone turns against you for making a stand on something to do with you being a Christian, how do you respond to that in a godly way? There's, there's so much in here that's very, very practical. And um, Peter wants to really get to the heart of it. But the question I want to ask you today is this, what's a Christian? What is a Christian? If I ask you to define it, maybe we'll do that in a minute, it'll be fun. If you could define in ten seconds what is a Christian, what would you say? There's probably a thousand and one ways you could say it accurately. So it's not so much... I mean, you, you could answer it wrong, but, <laughs> but you know, it'd be quite hard to in some ways, you know, if you've, if you've just kind of got any sense. So, anyone, any, not any common sense, any sense of what the Bible teaches? Let's have a go. Who wants to give me a five-second attempt at what a Christian is? Is that you, Hage? Oh. <laughs> Dan? Someone who's died to himself and been raised with Christ. Yeah, we'll tick the box for that. Anyone else? Someone who believes in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Absolutely. Someone who follows Jesus and his teachings and believes he's the Son of God. Yeah, anything else? Someone who heart, loves the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul and strength. Yeah, anything else? Someone with a big body. Someone with a big... Now, when I said it would be hard to get it wrong, what I meant was... Yeah, some people with big Bibles are Christians. <laughs> Other people just think if they have a big Bible, they'll get into heaven, so they buy a big Bible. That's where the trouble starts. So yeah, anything else? Someone who's accepted Jesus' forgiveness. Someone who's accepted Jesus' forgiveness, yes. Very good. Anything else? Okay. Now, just to, just to highlight something which is interesting, all those, all those answers were right. The vast majority of them, though, were speaking about what the person has done rather than what God has done to the person. Does that make sense? Most of your answers were talking about something that that person did. They either loved the Lord or believed the Lord or followed the Lord, and that's all completely right. But when the Bible speaks about someone becoming a Christian, it emphasises first and foremost what God does to the person. And that the person can really do nothing towards God until God has operated on the person. That there's something that God has to do. And all through the Bible, especially this letter of Peter, you'll find he constantly goes back to what God has done. What God has done. And he delights in it. Maybe part of the reason is, is that Peter is one of the most grateful men on the planet. He's the only man on the planet who could have called himself a close friend of Jesus. Um, 
and then denied that he knew him three times. And then was forgiven and restored by Jesus and was able not to miss out on what Jesus had for him. I mean, there's a man who's going to live gratefully. If you've ever made a mistake, you'll know what it is like when that mistake gets forgiven and when that is overlooked and you don't miss out on the, on, on the benefits. You know, you know those situations where either you, maybe you're in a friendship with someone and you say something you think, ah, oh, blown it. You know those moments you think, I've really blown it. And you, you, you go back and you put it right and they say, look, okay, I forgive you, let's move on. That sense of, ah, it's all right. Yeah? We've not lost it forever. Peter lives that way. He's received mercy from God and he knows about it. But that's not the only reason. The, only re- the only other reason why is this, is that the Christian gospel focuses much more on what God does to a person in order for them to be saved before it talks about what the person then does in response. So let's read the first two verses and we're going to just stay here again this week. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle means sent one. He's been sent by Jesus. To those who are elect exiles or chosen rejects, as we looked at it last week, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Now they were five Roman provinces around the area of modern day Turkey. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter says, you're, you're chosen by God, but you're exiles, you've been dispersed from your homeland, you're, you're migrants in these five, eight, five Roman provinces, and not only that, you're not just migrants naturally, you're migrants spiritually, you don't belong anymore, you're in the world, but you're not of it, because you know Jesus, you no longer live like the world lives, and so these guys are having a hard time of it. They're getting lots of stick, because later on, Peter says, look, you're not getting involved in drunkenness, you're not getting involved in orgies. You're not getting involved in um, other things that are described as kind of lusts. And, and that was normal in those days. It was a very normal thing. Much like our days, I guess, more and more. But, and they said, no, we're not doing that. So here are these people, they've moved in. They're trying to fit in, as you do when you move somewhere new. But they're saying, we don't do that. And they're being persecuted, opposed as a result. So Peter says, I want you to know this. You are chosen rejects, but listen, you're chosen rejects, number one, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Number two, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Number three, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Which, if you're not familiar with those terms, sounds kind of weird and vampire but it'll become clear as we, as we move on. So, I'm going to look at those three things today, and we're going to have a great time, and then we're going to celebrate salvation. Okay? So your chosen rejects according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What is the foreknowledge of God the Father? What does it mean? The Bible says that God knows everything, the end from the beginning. However, if you've been around Christian circles for a while, you will know there is a growing trend and a growing kind of, I don't know, a theology which is called openness theology. Anyone heard of it? Hands up if you've heard of it. One, one, two. You've heard of it because you're married to me. You've heard of it because you're from Westminster Chapel and um, everyone from Westminster Chapel knows everything. So this is why. <laughs> this is why. Okay? Or maybe someone's heard of The Openness of God. It's in a book with that title or anything like it. Okay, How to Preach Irrelevant Sermons by Steph Liston. Okay? <laughs> I could write a book on this. No one knows what I'm talking about. But you may face it, so I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Here's what they teach. They teach that, um, and it's a growing trend, even in Christian circles, who, and they call the, the, the Bible their authority, but they say this, that... God doesn't actually know how it's going to pan out. Okay? He's not actually, it's not actually a fixed thing. More is up for grabs, if you like, than what has been traditionally thought by Christians. Now, why, why would someone come to 
this kind of conclusion after reading the Bible. Well, there's a number of incidents in the Bible which actually are very remarkable. You've got, you've got King Ahab, wicked king, bad king, meant to be a king of God's people, very, very wicked. God says to Elijah the prophet, go and tell Ahab his history and so his descendants. I've had enough. Elijah goes to Ahab, says, your history, so are your descendants. What does Ahab do? He, he takes off his royal clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he mourns before God. He, says, uh, he, just, he just humbles himself. God then says to Elijah the prophet, look at that humility, go back to him and tell him, I'm still going to do your descendants, but you're all right. Okay? What happened there? God changed his mind. Why? God was moved by Ahab's humility. Let's think about another situation. Um, King Hezekiah, Isaiah 38, you'll find this. I'll give you the references later if you want. King Hezekiah, godly king, but he gets ill, goes to inquire of a prophet. Prophet says, yeah, God says this illness is unto death. He goes to bed and cries. Weeps and weeps and weeps. Says, God, how can you do this? Come on, I've followed you. God is moved by his grief and says, okay, 15 more years. Yeah? He's moved by it. God, God, is, God is affected by the man's grief, by the man's humility, by the man's prayers. Or the story of Jonah. This is classic. God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them they're just wicked, terrible city, 40 days and it's all over. I'm going to judge the whole city. Jonah goes, preaches through the city, 40 days and it's all over. The king says, man, calls a city-wide fast. Everyone fasts and mourns. God says, okay then, we won. Jonah gets the hump because <laughs> he's racist and doesn't like Ninevites and God has to then deal with Jonah. But God is moved by their humility, he's moved by their prayer. Now, so there is one good thing about openness theology, here it is. It teach, it, it's understood that God's sovereignty, the fact that God rules, actually it recognises that within that he's moved. It's a personal sovereignty, it's a dynamic sovereignty. It's not some static, impersonal thing. God can be moved, prayer affects God when we humble ourselves before God, it's personal. That's a really, really good thing, okay? But I would say everything else about openness theology is bad. <laughs> because it neglects the rest of scripture, which really teaches all kinds of things. For example, um, teaches that God runs the universe, teaches that every day of our life was written in his book before one of them came to be. Did you know that? Every day of your life written in his book before one of them came to be. So what was written in Hezekiah's thing? Was, what, what, did, what did God mean when he said that and then he changed that? I don't know. But I believe the Bible. If you want to understand God, you will never get every loose end tied together, every eye dot and every T crossed, you're not going to get anywhere. Because to know God is pure mystery. But I think something you've got to be clear on is that God knows. He knows the end from the beginning. How else could all these prophets prophesy about the Messiah that's coming, Jesus? And I think there was something like 300 odd prophecies about Jesus that he fulfilled all of them completely accurately. Listen, how, how could these prophets prophesy this if God doesn't actually know if it's going to pan out? How could someone write the book of Revelation, which among other things is about how it's all going to end, if God doesn't know? How could God come to the prophet Daniel and show him a statue symbolising the next four or five empires to come, hundreds of years before they came, and then they all came? God knows, God knows. He knows the end from the beginning. It's very important that you grasp this, that you understand this. God's foreknowledge is complete, and yet it's dynamic, it's personal, he can be affected and moved by prayer, but he actually knows all that's going to happen. I believe the Bible teaches that. Very, very clearly. So what does it mean then to have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? Because here's another thing that people teach, which the Bible doesn't teach, teaches this. People teach this, they say, God's foreknowledge means this. He, he knows what you're like before you're going to be born, and he knows that you're going to choose him, so he chooses you. 
You understand that? Okay? He knows that you're kind of godly type. You're that way. Yeah? Some people aren't that way. Some people are that way. He knows you're that way. Yeah? He knows that when you hear the gospel, because of what you're like, you're going to respond. So God chooses. That's God choosing according to his foreknowledge. That is not biblical teaching on God's foreknowledge. Because the Bible says that there is no one who's good. There is none who seeks after God. We have all gone our own way. We're all rotten sinners. We'd all much rather be left to our own devices so we can get on and do our own thing, follow after our lusts. It's not that it's particular, oh, they're always, you know, some people say, well, they're always, they're that sort, they're the religious sort. They're the God type. There is no God type. Now, there are some people that are a bit more religious. They like their little ornaments and their little things and a few things around the house make them feel like if, you know, if, they, if, they, if their time is up, they've got a bit of insurance. I had that statue up, you know, or I had that cross hanging. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit of superstition. I've got a few things. It's like an insurance policy of kind of monuments and religious stuff. Yeah? A bit of Buddhism, a bit of Christian, a few different ones, just in case that one's right. I have a bit of this over here. Buddha in the garden. It's all good. Yeah? Surrounded. It's not third party fire and theft. Fully comp. Yeah? It's all, it's all right. Yeah? It's that sort of thing. Some people are more that way, but that is nothing, that is nothing, that's nothing to do with how your genuine response to God. Your genuine response to God is that you just say, I'm a rotten sinner. And I need forgiveness. And if someone doesn't help me, I'm done for. God says, I've done it all for you. I've given my son to die for you in your place and be raised again so you can have eternal life in him. Some people then say, nah, I don't like, no, 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 I don't like all that. That's a typical human response. When someone has been worked on by God, they say, yeah, I need that. And reach out their arms and ask for mercy. That's according to God's foreknowledge. God's foreknowledge doesn't mean that he knew you were going to be a godly type, so he chose you. That's you choosing. That's you. That's, that's your sovereignty. God's foreknowledge is this. The, the, in the Bible, the word knowledge means to know intimately. The Bible says Adam knew Eve. What does it mean when it says that? Any guesses? Any suggestions? Adam knew Eve. What, you know, she's, a, she's a good girl. Brown hair. They made babies. That's exactly what it means. The most intimate knowledge possible, humanly speaking, Adam knew Eve. To know in the Bible means relationship. It means acquaintance of an intimate sense. What does God mean when he says this to the, to the Israelites? You only have I known of all the families of the earth. What's that God saying? Is that God saying, oh, there's other, there's other nations. I didn't know that. I thought it was only you. It doesn't mean that. It means, actually, I know all of these, but I know you. I know you. What does God's foreknowledge mean? It means that from eternity past, he saw you and knew you and loved you. And it was nothing to do with whether you were going to be that godly type to turn to him. You was a rotten sinner and he said, I love you and I know you and I'm intimately acquainted with all your ways. And before you even say a word, I know what it's going to be because I know you through and through and I'm calling you to myself. That's God's foreknowledge. Now, bear in mind, these people he's writing to are in uncertain circumstances. Everything's up in the air. What's the future hold? Da, 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 da. God says, this, Peter says, listen, God knew you. God knew you. God foreknew you. I want you to know today, if you are in Christ, you are foreknown by God. Regardless of what's gone on, regardless of the things, circumstance, do you think, what does the future hold? You don't know, but he does. He knows you. He knows you. He knows what you can bear. He knows your limits. He knows, you might be in a situation thinking, I don't think I can cope with this. Listen, the Bible says he will not test you beyond what you can bear. And he knows what you can bear. We, I remember there was, situ- there was times in the past, I mean, Davina, the, the pressure, oh man. Three kids in a one-bedroom flat living next door to a nocturnal DJ in Peckham. 
it was just. And there were times where I thought, I can't do this anymore. I remember one night, it was all kicked off outside a huge fight, and you feel, you know, you know, some guy dragging a girl around by hell or something crazy. I tried to get involved and just felt helpless in that as well. And, you know, the bass is going next door and the kids are screaming in the cupboard they used to sleep in. It was late. Then I had to get up at six in the morning to go and preach in Manchester. I went up there, came back, went straight to an elders' meeting at 8 p.m. Went to the elders' meeting, sat there feeling pretty frazzled. And then at the end of the elders' meeting, just walking out, one of the other elders says, How are you doing, Steph? Just broke. <gasps> Here I am, elder of a church, sat on a street in Bermondsey, heaving sobs. I can't do this. I can't do it. Just, just, I just, I can't do this. I'm at the end. I've got nothing more. And then a hug, a few fatherly words. Let, let me know a few scriptures, prayer, encouragement. Come on, because you will not test you beyond what you can bear. He won. He won. And so this is what it means when God foreknows us. He knows us. <laughs> with all our silly ways. With all our embarrassingly silly ways. You understand what I'm saying? He knows us. And he loves us. He loves us. Hallelujah. Amen. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. So, secondly, I mean these two will be shorter. I wanted to focus on that one. Secondly, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. What is this? Sanctification means purification. The Bible teaches this. When you get saved, Holy Spirit comes, lives inside of you, and he purifies you. This is massive. I was having a chat with someone in the church just a couple of days ago. We were talking about becoming Christians, just sharing a testimony. I said, you know what, I was gripped by certain sins before I became a Christian. Gripped. And I couldn't see a way out. I couldn't see a way out. I just thought, this is scary. And now I can stand before you and say, I'm free. What is that? (laughs) I mean, what is that? It's not religion. Religion doesn't do that. What is that? It's the Holy Spirit. He changes us. He transforms and purifies us. Now, we don't become the finished article overnight. We're all aware of areas where God's still working on. But I tell you what, he doesn't have to work well, doesn't he? He works well. He does amazing miracles. This is what he does. It's not just that God says, I've, cho- I've chosen you, I know you. He then brings the Spirit in to come. The Bible describes it like this, that he shines in the light of our heart. And so that blindness that was there before, where we didn't see Jesus. See, we might have liked the idea of Jesus, but we couldn't really see him or know him. If someone says, pray, you think, I don't know what to say. You know, that, when you don't know Jesus, someone says, pray, I say, I don't know, what do you do? I don't know what to do. You know, and when someone knows Jesus, they know what to do when you say pray. Because you know him. Yeah, you know him. Suddenly it makes sense. What is that? The Holy Spirit has come into your life, and he's turned the light on. And it's like the blindness that was there caused by Satan, the Bible says, just dispels. You know, you know if you ever go into a room and it's dark, all you've got to do is turn the light on. You haven't got to chase the darkness out, have you? You notice that? You haven't got to you get out, you dark. No, you just turn the light on. <laughs> Deals with it. Deals with it. It's an amazing thing. Okay? And sometimes, you know, you, some, some people get so worked up about the darkness in their lives, and I just turn the light on. Get near to Jesus. Yeah? Get, just get... Because the light shines and the darkness goes. Light is more powerful than darkness. So he comes in and he shines. He shines the glory of Christ into your heart and you see him and you think, I know him. Wow. I know him now. That's what he does. The Bible says he takes out, the Bible says that we're naturally ignorant. Spiritual dimwits. We haven't got a clue. Holy Spirit comes. Bang. Brings understanding. Oh, got it. Yeah. 
Why is this the Holy Spirit? It's the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. It's yours. If you're a believer, it's yours. It's what God does. Now, on the one hand, it happens instantly because Jesus is your sanctification and you can, he will never be more yours than he is today. But on the other hand, it's a process. You're a work in progress. Anyone know that? Anyone feel that? Yeah? Anyone feel, I feel there's some people here today that you feel like you're a work in progress, but you're discouraged by that. You're so aware of where you're not. But listen, that is just a, simply a sign and indicator that you're one of his. Because if you're not a believer, you don't get that. It doesn't make sense. You're working focus, I'm fine. I need saving, I'm fine. That's naturally where we're at. We just point to other people on how bad they are. So, fine. When you become a believer, you suddenly realise, man, I... Okay. <laughs> it's not as impressive as I thought it was. Listen, God is at work in you. God is at work in you for his good pleasure. Yeah? By the Spirit. Hallelujah. So the Holy Spirit's at work in you. You're being sanctified by him. And final point, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What does this mean? Well, it means the Father? Is this God? Yeah, sure. Low batteries. No problem. It's fine. Obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. So, chosen according to God's foreknowledge. In the sanctification of the Spirit, so if you're a believer, you're getting purified, you're getting sanctified. What, for what purpose? For obedience to Jesus. Now, for some people, that might not sound very inspiring. Think, well, surely be for, you know, for heaven, for, for obedience to Jesus. There is nothing more joyful than knowing you're following Jesus. Am I right? If you're a believer, you know what I'm saying. That you just know, I'm following Jesus. Even when it's tough, there's no joy that compares to that. You've been called to obey. Now, not slavish obedience. Not legalistic kind of, you know like the teenage girl, for example, who, I don't know, her friends are saying, come on, come out, come nightclub in, you know, Jim is going to be there, right? And she, and she says, look, I really want to come, I really want to come out, but my parents have said I can't, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey him, I'm going to do the right thing. Now that's commendable, but that's not what Christian obedience is like. Because that kind of obedience really thinks, I really want to do that but I'm going to obey. That's not Christian obedience. Christian obedience is when you are completely thrilled with what God's got for you and you've been t- come totally aware that what the world offers is rubbish compared to what God's got for you. Okay? It doesn't last forever. Spoils and fades, but what God's got for you, where you go, I can't wait to do what God says. It's the obedience of faith. Yeah? Totally different thing. It's not, I'm going to be really godly and commendable. Although I want to do this, I'm going to actually do what God says. It won't be much fun, but it's right. No, that is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, I've come to give you life in all its fullness. That's what he said. The Bible says God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. If that's how you're thinking, like that teenage girl, you've missed it. What God offers is better. It's much better. It's more enjoyable, even temporarily. It's wonderful. But so, so we've been called to obey Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now let's just finish on this. What does it mean to be sprinkled with his blood? Well, you need to go back to the Old Testament and what would happen was this. If someone got a skin disease, leprosy or something like this, they would have to, they would have to be removed from the, um, God's people and their relationship with God was affected. Uh, it was a kind of a weird ceremonial thing. I won't go into details now. But they had to walk around saying, unclean, unclean. And then, and then what would happen is, is that um, 
as they recovered from their illness, a, a priest would sprinkle them with, with the blood of an animal and it would symbolise that their defilement was over. It would symbolise that that season of being separated and kind of outcast was over. So what is it to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus? It's something whereby the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Why with the, how? With the blood of Jesus. And so the Christian life, who's ever noticed this as a Christian? You're looking to obey Jesus, but you don't always get it right. Anyone notice that? You don't get it quite right, yeah? You sin. In fact, James says we all stumble in many ways. And I really like it that James says that because James is probably the scariest writer of the whole Bible. And he seems like, sort of, kind of like, like you know what I mean, the headmaster. And this, we all stumble in many ways. I'm like, yes! Even James did, you know? Because you think, man, you know, ah, is it just me? And he says, no, we all do. We all stumble. We try it, but we get it wrong. We say silly things. We don't do We act selfishly, and then we, we're aware of it. What happens then? What do we do then? Because it definitely affects our relationship with God. If I don't love you as I should, it affects my relationship with you. Things, there's difficulties coming. What if I sin against you, say unhelpful words, and there's that thing, and there's a war, and what do we do? We come and we confess to God. When need be, we confess to the person, we say sorry, and there's a sprinkling with the blood of Christ which symbolizes his once and for all sacrifice for sins, and it cleanses us completely. Hallelujah. In our relationship with God. And then also, as we forgive one another, the walls that were building up of bitterness and anger are toppled down, and we're restored with one another. We're reconciled. That's how God does it. It's wonderful. This is the gospel. What is a Christian? Someone who's been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Someone who's being sanctified by the Spirit. Someone who's obeying Jesus and being sprinkled with his blood. you like that? And then Peter finishes with this. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Multiplication is different from addition. Did you know that? Let me show you how it works. Two plus two is... 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 Twelve. Two times two is... Times two is... Times two is... Times two is, times two is, multiplication is much better. 12 verses 64. Peter doesn't say, have a bit of peace and have a bit of grace. Now let's multiply it. What's multiplication? Well, it's three lots of three. Four lots. So how much peace do you want from God? Grace, lots of peace. You like that? How much grace do you want from God? Peace, lots of grace. You like this? Yeah? So, what kind of peace does God want me to have? He wants you to have grace, lots of peace. What's grace? Favour, abundance, lavish. That's the peace God's got for you. Hallelujah? How much grace does God want you to have? Peace amounts. Peace. Enough grace to bring you to that place where you're no longer gripped by anxiety, no longer living under the cosh of just a lack of peace and hostility, but you've got grace, lots of abundance, lots of peace. That is the Christian life. When you grasp the gospel, you should be living in a multiplication of grace and peace. So does that mean things always go well? Of course not. Loads of trials, loads of opposition, but those things should not allow our grace and peace to be robbed. Praise God. You feel like singing at this point. All right, <laughs> let's pray. Lord, thank you for this gospel. Thank you, Father, you've chosen us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in your sight. Blameless in your sight. Thank you that you know us, you know all our ways, Lord, and you still love us. We thank you, Lord, that you've reached into our lives by your spirit and your spirit has shone the wonder of Jesus into our hearts. We thank you that we're being purified and sanctified now so that we can obey Jesus. And we thank you, Father, that even when we get it wrong in our attempts to obey and when we get selfish or lazy, we thank you there's the sprinkling of the blood to cleanse us and to restore us in relationship with you. We thank you for grace and peace multiplied into our lives. Lord, we just thank you. You're so good to us. And help us to walk in the good of it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.